So let's do this. If you guys have your Bibles, take them, open them up to Matthew uh, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a couple of weeks ago we started a brand new series through the Summer on the Mount. That's what we're going to be doing through the summer. And uh, um, we're going to be doing this basically with all of our pastoral staff. I'm going to be teaching several times, obviously, but we're also going to be having each one of our uh, on-staff pastors teach as well. So Pastor James will be teaching. Uh, Nick will be teaching who oversees our college ministry. And Ben, who oversees our high school and junior high ministry as well. And it uh, should be a really great series over the summer. I'm excited about it. I encourage you guys as we are going through this to be reading through it on your own time. To be asking God is to, to speak to your heart concerning the text and the passage. But today what we're going to be doing, we're going to be taking a look at chapter 5, looking at about verse 17. So if you guys don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. You can pick them up. But I want to jump in and start this morning by basically reading the passage. And then we'll pray and then we'll to work on the larger passage that we're going to be looking at. So verse 17 is where I want to begin. We'll read down to about verse 20 and uh, go from there. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God, I ask you right now that you would just let your word um, have an impact upon our hearts and leave an impression. Um, and God, we pray more than anything that today we would not just simply be messing around or fiddling with uh, information. But God, I pray that what we would be impacted and confronted with would be revelation that brings transformation to our hearts and to our lives. That opens our eyes, that opens our ears, that moves our hearts, raises our affections, and helps us to be uh, affected and impacted by the glory and the beauty of who you are. That we'd be changed. That that's what we want. That's what we want to see happen. That we would be changed so that by the grace that's changed us, we would go forth and change the city that we live in and see the world and the culture transformed and changed as we shine forth as lights and as we act like salt as a preservative. So God, help us, we pray, that ultimately in the end, we would be full of your joy and you would be glorified by our lives. That's what we ask for. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Kind of as a way of a little bit of a backdrop, what we've looked at so far in the book of Matthew is this theme where Jesus comes on the scene and he has sort of this monologue. Jesus talks in chapter 5, 6, and 7. All these chapters are basically this message that Jesus gives. It's a collection of messages or a collection of thoughts or concepts that compose one single message that's traditionally or typically called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' monologue, Jesus' sermon. It's great. It's amazing. It's life-transforming. In fact, in chapter 4, uh, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus basically describes this whole thing as sort of the gospel of the kingdom or the good news about the kingdom of God. 
Now, what's important to note before we even jump into this even further, because Jesus is going to use the phrase kingdom of God in the passage that we just looked at, because he talks about some people are in the kingdom, some people aren't in the kingdom, some people are least in the kingdom, some people are greatest in the kingdom. So the question of what is the kingdom, I think, becomes relevant. What does it mean? Uh, It becomes also a theme that's all throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, interestingly enough, it's really not a theme or a phrase that's really found in the Old Testament. However, the concept is there. And the way that the Jews would have understood it, and especially first century people would have understood this concept of the kingdom of God, is in short, this idea of God's reign, God's power, God's authority, moving into a spot, moving into a zone, moving into a place, taking over maybe a person's life, transforming a community, changing a nation. These would be all sort of synonymous ways in which they would talk about the kingdom of God, bringing transformation. Uh, I think in our culture, in the Christian culture especially, there's been sort of a season within the church that's sort of exclusively viewed the kingdom of God as being something that's way off in the distant future and way out there. Meaning when you die, you go to the kingdom of heaven. And when you got, when you die, you go way up there. And we pointed this out in our first message that the reasons why I think that became sort of the idea is because when you talk about God as being this mysterious God, He's a huge God, He's a big God, you begin to liken Him and associate Him with other things that are also equally mysterious and distant. The heavens is one of them. Right? Imagine yourself as a Jew 2,000 years ago, sitting outside, around a campfire, hanging out with the kids, roasting marshmallows, and you look up into the sky, and you think, that's mysterious. And God's big, really big, and He inhabits it all. Alright? So God is out there. But what happens is we also tend to lose sight of the fact that God is not only out there, but He's also current and present and here now. Alright? So some theologians have sort of tried to describe it like this. The idea of the kingdom of God is not only present here and now, but also yet to come. Meaning there is a sense in which God's reign, God's authority, uh, whenever God releases somebody from sinful activity, or God breaks the bonds of addiction, or God sets somebody free from some sort of ensnaring sin... Those are ways or elements by which God's kingdom has come. Or somebody gets healed of a disease. God's kingdom broke through and sort of formed a revolt against the powers that be, demonic or whatever. Alright? God's kingdom's present here. It's come. But also, in a sense, there is a reality in which the, pre- the kingdom of God is to come. Meaning, one day in the future, Jesus will come back and this whole world will become the kingdom of God in a sense, in that reality, right? That this world in which we live will be lived underneath the present, current, powerful, authoritative, good reign of God. Okay? That's why you read verses in the book of Revelation where it talks about in that day, He will wipe away every tear from our eye. There won't be any sadness, won't be any sorrow. Jesus will be on the throne. He'll rule and reign. There won't be any sickness, any disease. Uh, you know, lions will lay down with lambs. You try to make that happen today and you got to keep replacing the lamb. Alright? So, we're not talking about a full kingdom of God here and now, but it's here and now in glimpses. 
in little moments, in, in times where God breaks through and people are changed and lives are transformed. But one day, everybody on this planet, on a renewed planet, new heavens and new earth, will be living under this reign of a really good God. So Jesus is talking about this. He's sort of bringing this message, the gospel, the good news of God's reign here and now. And it's sort of announcing to those people that respond to it, saying that you will be changed. You'll be different. You won't be under the old tyranny of legalism and of the law and of addictions to sin. God comes to set you free so that His kingdom reign is upon your life, so that you are changed. And really, in a sense, this concept of kingdom can also be interpreted as sort of a, sort of a revolution. That Jesus is coming... In short, and he's bringing a revolution. He's changing things. Right? Things, it's, and oftentimes the way you think about a revolution is a radical upset over a former, uh, horrible government. Right? In the sense of what you think about when a revolution, you got a bad government, a bad system that's full of tyranny, and then you got another group of people that are sick and tired of it, and the way they take care of this horrible, evil, uh, oppressive type, you know, Kingdom is they take guns and they take arms and throw it. And the curious thing is they overthrow this horrible, oppressive kingdom that's full of violence with violence and horrible, oppressive spirits. So what happens is you've got a horrible, oppressive kingdom overthrown by a horrible, oppressive kingdom, and you've just simply replaced oppressiveness with oppressiveness. Does that make sense? Jesus comes along and says, I got a revolution, but we're not going to revolt in the way that you traditionally think of revolt. This is a revolt that's going to transform things. It's a revolution that will change the way, not just the way you act, but the way that you are, who you are, what you're like, what you love, what you like, how you think. That's what he's going to say. It's going to be a heart or a revolution a change of heart. That's what's going to take place. But what's happening when Jesus comes along and he's talking about this, a lot of people begin to think. Because one of the things that Jesus comes down hard upon oftentimes are the scribes and Pharisees. And the religious leaders of the day. And he's communicating against them. And these guys, you got to understand, they represent Moses. They represent the law. In fact, the scribes and Pharisees, they would sit in a seat that would call, be called the seat of Moses. Moses' seat. It's a significant a place of honor. And basically, it sort of meant something like this. The person who sits in Moses' seat is the person that interprets what Moses meant. So the scribes and Pharisees, their job, or their role, whatever it was in the culture and the society, was to interpret for the people what Moses meant to say. So Jesus is coming along and he's saying, listen, you guys, you guys aren't doing it right. You aren't seeing it right. You're not interpreting Moses correctly. So at the beginning portion, what we just read in verse 17... All the way down throughout, for the most part, the rest of chapter 5 is really what is typically called by theologians kind of the antithesis, where Jesus is going to say things like this. You've heard it said before. Moses said, don't murder. But I'm going to tell you, don't hate somebody. Right? So some people might take that and think, see, Jesus is bagging on the law. Right? Jesus is bagging on Moses. In reality, he's not. What he's really doing is he's taking Moses that has been falsely or wrongly interpreted through the teachings of the religious scribes and Pharisees, and he's taking it out of the mud 
He's vesting it off and he's saying there's a better way to look at this. There's a truer way. There's a more accurate way to understand Moses and to understand the law of God. That's what Jesus is doing. So there, some people falsely assumed maybe Jesus is sort of replacing the law. Maybe he's getting rid of the law. Maybe, maybe he's moving the law out and, uh, and as a result of that starting a new religion. In reality, Jesus comes along, and what he says in verse 17 is, that's really not what's happening. Something completely different is taking place. And so, what Jesus is going to do in the next few verses, is going to essentially give his understanding of the Torah. Alright? The uh, Old Testament, as you, we might have it. So, what I want to do is, I'm going to give you basically four ways in which I think Jesus looks at the Torah, looks at the Old Testament, and tries to breathe new life into the Torah. Rather than just simply taking the Torah at face value as the way the scribes and Pharisees did, in a sense, Jesus is going to sort of redeem how the scribes and Pharisees falsify the Torah, or how they falsely interpreted the Torah. Alright? And this is one of the big things in our day and age, today in which we live in. Right? There's a lot of people that tend to just look at the Bible and they're like, you can't believe the Bible. Alright? Or you can't believe some dude spin on the Bible. Right? And there's a sense where we can cast dispersion and doubt upon it. I think that there's a lot of good reason why we can do that, and healthy reasons perhaps why we should do that. But what happens, unless there's a rock which we can stand on, what happens is the Bible just becomes a book amidst you know, millions of books that people are trying to change or base their life upon. And really what I think Jesus is trying to do is saying, listen, there's value in the Bible. There's value in the Old Testament. There's value in God's Word. And I want to redeem it. I want to save it from bad interpretations, which lead to bad lifestyles, which lead to a disconnect between God. Because what I want to say is this from the outset. The ultimate goal where I want to try to go with this is I hope to break through some false interpretations or false concepts that you might have about God in order to bring you back into an understanding of how God truly, just, simply wants to connect with you as His created being. But God created you. God loves you. And what's happened is our sin has dr- driven us away from God. And because we sort of feel distant from God, we feel something's not right inside of us, what happens is we're just like Adam and Eve. We sow fig leaves together problem is we don't have a uniform, you know, clothing connection throughout the whole world. Every one of us sows fig leaves, but they're all different fig leaves, is what I'm trying to say. We all have different ways in which we're trying to make things right between us and God. Okay? Some might call it religion. Some might call it whatever. But the bottom line is this, is that Jesus is trying to say, listen, it's not how you get to God through some sort of religious external format. At the end of the day, Jesus is going to say, I'm the one that will bring you to God. I'm the one that will take you there. So the first thing that Jesus wants to do is he wants to talk about the Torah in terms of being great. So verse 17 is going to uh, kind of display this. Take a look at the slide right there. He's going to talk about the greatness of the law. In verse 17, he says, don't you think that I have... Come, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' whole point is that I'm not going to destroy the law. It's not my intention to usurp the authority of the Torah or to usurp the authority of God's Word. It's not my intention at all. In fact, 
Quite the contrary. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to really fulfill it, to make it what it should be, to interpret it through the proper channels so that it can be lived out properly. Alright? I think you'd all agree that if you had false instructions, let's just hypothetically say you bought a shelf at Ikea that's already an impossible task to put together as it is, with instructions. Alright? With instructions. It already takes like seven days to put together with instructions. Alright? But let's say somebody played a trick on you and said, I'm going to swap out the instructions on how to put together an Ikea shelving unit with one that's bought from Target. Totally different wood, totally different everything. And you're like lost. Alright? You don't know how to put this thing together. Okay? The bottom line is this. The Word of God was entrusted to the scribes and Pharisees. They did not handle it or communicate it or convey it properly. And what it sort of happened was people were led away from God. Jesus comes and says, I want to interpret the law and the prophets correctly. I'm going to tell you how to do that properly. Jesus, in other words, says the only way to truly know the Bible is through me. Is interpreted through me. That's what he's going to communicate. That's what he's going to convey to them. So the first thing he wants us to see really is that the law of the Torah is great. What I want to do real quick is I want to pause and just kind of ask the question, how important is the law and the prophet to the Jews? What does that really mean? Because you'll find in the New Testament the phrase, law and the prophets. Or some other passages you might see the law, the writings, and the prophets. Those basically are sort of synonymous terms. And what it means is the Jews basically would break the Torah or the Old Testament, the Bible, into three specific categories. They would have the law, which would have been the first five books uh, written by Moses. It's called the uh, Torah. Secondly, you would have the writings, which would have been like a compilation of other authors like Solomon, like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, uh, the Psalms. Those would have been the writings, Song of Solomon. And then the prophets. This collection of writings or books would have been like uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, all of the other minor prophets, and so on. And what would happen is this collection, three books would be compiled into one book. Each one of those in Hebrew uh, had, had its own uh, specific Hebrew name. And they had sort of an acronym about it. And they would call this the Tanakh which is the other way of saying the law, the writings, and the prophets. So when you read Jesus and he's saying the law and the prophets, basically what he's saying is what is really characterized or composed of how we would identify the Old Testament. So if you take the Old Testament from you know, Genesis all the way to Malachi, that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I've not come to abolish that. I've not come to disregard that. I've come actually to fulfill it. I've come actually to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, what he's going to really communicate about this is, is he wants us to understand that this is great. That the Bible, God's Word, the Law, the Writings, the Prophets, is actually great. The reason why it's great is because the Jews would have viewed the Bible as being really a reflection of who God is. That's how they viewed the Bible. They viewed the Torah the Tanakh, the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets, as basically being a reflection of the very character and the very nature of God. Now, what I want you to see is this. That God's good. Jews saw this. They saw, you know, God is good. 
He's a good God. And anything that God is going to communicate, convey, or tell us to do, it's going to be good. So how does that cause... How do you think the Jews would have understood the Bible? Well, they would have viewed it as good. Here's an example of uh, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect or complete. And, what, and it says it restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what I love about this is the Jews basically viewed the Torah, the Bible. And they says, you know what? God's word is so good, it makes one complete. It makes one shalom. The word complete means whole. Shalom. It brings peace. Wholeness. A person who is in peace has, is complete. He's made whole. And the way to be made whole, as the Jews viewed it, was God gives and gifts His Word to His people who love so that they can be complete. But the Word is also meant to take people who are not too smart and make them wise. Right? They viewed it like this. You know, like people who don't have God's Word are living in darkness. They would get, they would have all these metaphors, all these pictures of, in word. And one of the ways in which they would view this is that, uh, light is sort of synonymous with wisdom. And the way to move from darkness or ignorance into light is God's word becomes that path. Another passage, Psalm 119, it talks about, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light into my path. It's this beautiful picture that God gifts his word to his children. So that they can have life. So that they can have wisdom. So that instead of darkness, they can have light. So what I want you to see is this. The claim that Jesus may be subverting the Bible, it's huge. It's not small. It's a huge thing. So Jesus says, no, you misunderstand me. I'm not here to destroy the Tanakh. I'm here actually to fulfill it. The Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah... It's great. And I want you to know that I affirm that, I agree with that, and I live according to that. That's what Jesus says. The second thing that Jesus wants them to know is not only that the law, the Torah is great, but in verse 18, He wants them to, to recognize that the law is also permanent. The permanence of the law. The law will last forever. And the way that He describes this as he takes some New Old Testament passages that talk about until the heavens and the earth pass away, and I think he sort of weaves that into his teaching here in verse 18. He says this, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, let me put it this way. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that as long as humanity has breath on planet earth, that's how long the word of the Lord will be relevant. That's how long it will be in existence. That's how long it will be around for. Alright? I think his point is that it's, it's, it's not going out. It's, it's here to stay. And, and I affirm that. I think, again, Jesus' point is I affirm that. And I'm not trying to subvert it, but I affirm the fact that it's great, but I'm also trying to point out the fact that I recognize that it's gonna last forever. It's permanent. And the way that he describes this, he says, I would even go so far as to say that not an iota or a dot is going to pass away from the law. The word uh, uh, iota is actually the um, Hebrew letter yod. It is the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And next slide you'll see this. And it's kind of an interesting thing because throughout Jewish history there have been um, um, ideas that had kind of risen. Some of which became sort of mystical. Some of them were just kind of cast off and debunked as being weird, strange, mystical type stuff. But some of it, sort of the ideas kind of stuck within Hebrew thought and thinking. 
And give me some examples of that. Jews placed a lot of, um, kind of, uh, they, they, had, they had sort of like this idea that every letter of the alphabet also had a numeric value to it. So, for example, the Yod is the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The number ten is very significant, right? Ten commandments. You got this idea that number ten is also a very important number. And so what happens is they would, they would place value upon certain words. In fact, uh, the rabbis would teach that the letter Yod is the most frequently used letter throughout the entire Old Testament. The most frequently used letter. In fact, the Yod starts out, the way they would look at it, is like a dot. Alright? And, and when you would write the letter Yod, you would write it on, you'd, the very first time that you would take your pen, dip it in ink, and stick it on the paper, that's a Yod. The dot. In other words, they would look at it this way. The Yod forms the basis of every letter, which forms the basis of every word, which forms the basis of every thought, concept, throughout all of Torah. Does that make sense? So, what I'm trying to say is that when Jesus says, listen, I agree, the Bible's permanent. God's Word is permanent. From the very first dot that leads into the train of thought of every revealed truth, all the way to the last little section where He says, all the way to the uh, uh, Kariah, or the dot, some of your translations might say, all the way to the accent point. So the cry was like an accent. Um, you would have a letter, and you can change the letter, uh, its emphasis, or the word, or the idea, by just simply putting a little uh, emphasis, or a little type of a mark on top of it. So I think what Jesus is saying, from the very dot that forms the basis of every thought in Torah, to the very last punctuation mark, none of it is going to pass away until all is fulfilled. So, Jesus' point is this, I think, is God's Word's eternal. It's permanent. It will last forever. And I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to accomplish this. To live it out. Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teaching, meaning how He interprets the Torah, is the important way to understand God's Word. So this is why it's important in our day. Okay? We live in a day and age where we're like, you know what, I don't need Asher to help me, I don't need a Bible study leader to help me, I don't even need a Bible. I can just go sit out somewhere, pray, and maybe somehow I can just interpret this all by myself. I don't even need Jesus. So we live in a world that has this mentality, this tendency to sort of lean towards uh, extreme spirituality, and I think what Jesus is trying to say is that you, you can't understand the Torah, which really is the revelation of God, unless you understand it through me. That's what I think he's saying. And he says, I, I'm not come to destroy the Torah. I've actually come to, contrary, to fulfill it. To actually be the one through whom not only can you understand the Torah, but that you will actually live through me, from God. I think that's what he's saying. Okay, the third thing in verse 19, he's going to talk now about the relevance of the law. Verse 19, he says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. Now, first of all, I want to say, this whole little passage, uh, section of passage that we're looking at, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, this really, to be really honest, I didn't say this in the beginning, I'll say it now. It's really a tough passage. There's a, there are so many different perspectives on this. So, what I wanted to simply say is this, if you're like, mm, I'm not sure if I heard it taught this way before, 
then, you know, it's possible, it's possible, my, I, I'm not seeing it right, alright? I hope that gives you a lot of comfort. Like, huh, I thought you were to be the dude to tell us how it's to be done, right? Uh, kind of, but, you know, I'm also at the same time wanting you to make sure that you cross-check everything I say. Don't just take my word for it, alright? I'm trying to say this, is that this passage of Scripture is really a difficult passage of Scripture. But really what it does is it leads kind of into the direction in terms of translating or interpreting or understanding the rest of what flows from the Sermon on the Mount. So I would encourage you, cross-check me, make sure I'm you know, doing it right. But here's what I think, especially about this verse. Here's what I think is happening. Because Jesus makes the point, first of all, that whatever the least of these commandments are, there are people that teach them and, and that, that teach others to not observe whatever the least of these things are. And there's other people that live according to a mentality that says, I don't need to keep the least of these commandments. Whoever this group of people are that think that we can just let the least of the commandments of God slide and teach others to let the least of the commandments slide, Jesus says these people will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So what I want to say first of all is this. I don't think he's saying... If you fail to keep every little detail of the law, you will go to hell. He's actually saying quite the contrary. There will be those who think in terms of some of the littler aspects of the law don't need to be followed. And they'll teach other people, don't follow them. I think Jesus' point, and he'll say that they'll be least in the kingdom. I think his point is not to say, good job, that's cool, just live trying to cut out everything. I think, think quite to the contrary. I think Jesus is saying, listen... Live according to all the law. But what you'll find in the end, we'll look at in a moment, you really can't. Right? You really can't. But Jesus does. He lives from the least to the greatest. And the point is, is that He wants those that live in Him to recognize that all of God's Word is relevant and all of God's words should be obeyed. So this raises the question. Are there sort of varying gradations of God's law? In other words, are certain things more weightier than others? Jesus seemed to imply this. So turn with me real quick, if you would. I'll try to communicate this uh, forward. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus talks about the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And uh, you guys are hypocrites. He says, Because you guys tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet you neglect. And here's what he says. The more weightier matters of the law. So in other words, he's saying that you guys focus on some of the smaller aspects of the law, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. So what I want to say is this, is that apparently to Jesus, there are areas within God's law that are very weighty, that ought to be lived according to. But there's other things that really ought to be lived according to as well, but aren't nearly as significant or as important as these other ones. So Jesus finishes up this little section here. He says, you guys have neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, the scribes and Pharisees, they would tie. Alright, I was sitting down with my kids last night, and as we were kind of looking at this passage and talking through it last night, uh, we have a little peppercorn thing on our table, you know, you grind it, good fresh pepper, love it. But I said, can you imagine dumping out every single peppercorn on the table and counting every single peppercorn. All right? Let's say there's a thousand peppercorns and we take hundred of those peppercorns and give those to God. <coughs> My kids are like, that's weird. I'm like, exactly. All right? Exactly. 
I'm like, do you think God wants us to live like that? And they're like, I don't know if peppercorns, but maybe with other things. I'm like, yeah, I think so, right. I think you're right. But the point is, is that the scribes and Pharisees live with this mentality that they had to, they, they really wanting hard to follow God's law. Okay? Don't get this idea that these guys were evildoers and trying to just destroy people. I think there was a lot of them that really genuinely wanted to live according to a righteous standard before God. And so they made up various laws and rules and requirements that they can follow and abide by to establish and put forth and do. And so thereby doing these things, they would basically feel, I did my righteousness, I did my duty, I did my thing before God, and I'm cool with God. So here's what Jesus says, you guys tithe your mint, all right, your dill, I think of dill seeds, right? These little tiny dill seeds. And your cumin. I mean, he says, you guys, you guys are so meticulous. You guys count every single seed in your house. That's weird, but you know what? That's, at the same time, whatever. I mean, if that's, that's the way you want to work, you know, view that, alright, whatever. But he says, the problem is, you guys have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Which is justice, showing mercy to other people. And at the same time, being faithful to God. You've neglected those things. I told my kids last night, I says, listen, if you had $10 in your heart, you're like, yeah, I want to go give this to God. And so you're getting ready to say, give it to God. You go to church and you're going to give it to the church. You meet one of your friends and your friend maybe had gone through a horrible time. Mom's not able to work or whatever the case is. And she needs food. She's like, Brianna, you have 10 bucks I can buy tuna fish with, whatever. You know, like, and I says, Brianna, if, if you withheld your money and... Instead, you're like, i got to give this to God. Do you think I would be happy with that? You know, she's like, no. I think God probably would have wanted me to give my money to the one that was hurting. She says, right. But what if you just went ahead and you're like, i got to tithe. i got to do this. It's the right thing to do. I, I, I think you would be focusing on a lesser matter while neglecting the greater thing. And here's what Jesus says. There are those that neglect the lesser things. And, he's, and I think his point is that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Because all of them are to be viewed as good. And he says, those people that live with the mentality, like, ah, who cares? I don't need to do it. No big deal. Here's what he says. They will be the least in the kingdom. I think his point is that, and here's, again, open interpretation. Here's what it's being communicated. Is that in the kingdom of God, in this reign of God, I think there are, the bottom line is there are people in the church in Christianity, people that have this mentality where they really just want to live by everything in God's Word and be faithful to it. And what happens is sometimes they might try really hard and they try to do as best as they can, but then there's other people that are really lax. They're like, ah, who cares? Who cares? And here's the way this breaks out in sort of practical mode. People can live like this. I know people that sort of have this mentality where like, you know what? I, I, I give to God. I go to church. I pray. Maybe I lead a Bible study or I do certain things. But there's certain areas in your life where you just look at, you know what? I'm going to hold a spot. You know, maybe it's like bitterness. You're like, I'm bitter with this person. I'm angry with this person. But I'll probably never see this person again. The reality is you might have good reason why to be angry with that person. But you, in your mind, you sort of made this decision that says, I'm not going to change it. I want to change it. But in every other part of my life, I'm just going to try to be right. I think what happens is, can he be saved and live like I mean, can he be a Christian and have that? I think so. 
But I think if you live like that for a long period of time and you just hate people, I think you really give an evidence to the fact that either A, you're not a Christian, or two, you are a Christian, but maybe falling into the category, like Jesus is saying here, the least in the kingdom. You're not living with the freedom and the joy and the blessing that God has given to you to live in the fullness of God's kingdom, of life, having freedom. Look, the bottom line is this, is any time God gives us a command, gives us a directive, gives us a direction, He does this not because He hates us, but really to the contrary, it's because He loves us. He wants us to find life in Him. But what happens is we end up kind of becoming like little kids. Little children, right? If you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about. The mentality is, can shift to the mentality of, of, I don't want to do what Dad tells me to do because maybe Dad doesn't really want me to be happy. There's times I just got to sit down with my kids and just say, look, guys, I, I love you. And the reason why I tell you to do certain things around the house and the reason why I tell you not to whack each other and the reason why I tell you not to yell at each other is because I see this destructive pattern where, Brandon, when you whack Brooke and she whacks you back twice as hard and then, Brandon, you whack her back four times as hard and then, Brooke, you whack her back and burn her room down and then when, Brandon, you burn her room down and destroy your bed and then, you know, cut her, all these things, it just escalates. It keeps going up and it's destructive. And at some point, I'm going to intervene and, and, and it'll be over then. It'll be all done. But I don't want to see you guys living in destructive behavior. I want to see you guys full of joy. And that's the way God is. So anytime God gives any directive, any command, it's really with this end in mind that says, I want your joy. I want you to have love. So that's what I think Jesus might be saying here. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think the goal is to just recognize we want to be great in God's kingdom. So let me finish with this little section here. Verse 20, which is the fourth thing I want to take a look at. First of which, Jesus wants us to see that the law is great. Second, that the law is permanent. Third, the law is relevant. Fourth, that the law really has purpose. So here's the question. What is the purpose? Verse 20 says this, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So a couple of things are implied. First of which is the very caretakers of the kingdom of God, the seed of Moses, missed the very thing they set out to achieve, the kingdom of heaven. They missed it. This is what Jesus is saying. The scribes, Pharisees, they missed the kingdom of heaven. And he says, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, then you too will miss the kingdom of heaven. So this raises a huge question, because the scribes and Pharisees of the day were viewed as religious heroes. I mean, these guys like have capes and a big S on their chest. And these guys were basically just huge figures when it came to religion. So when Jesus says, listen, your righteousness has to be better than theirs. I mean, how do you top tithing peppercorns? I mean, how do you top that? Yeah, you really don't. But unless Jesus is talking about a righteousness that comes from another source. Let me tell you what I mean. Scribes and Pharisees, they seemed to have derived... Now, I want to say the word righteousness just simply means right relationship or rightness. 
rightness with God, or rightness from God, alright? So if it's sort of this ambiguous phrase, it's really big, like righteousness, what does that mean? You know, I know it's probably not a word you use every single day in every other paragraph, but the point I'm trying to make is this, is that Jesus, listen, these guys, you might think that they have a rightness with God because they do all this stuff, but they don't. They don't. It's an external righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from everybody else patting them on the back, everybody else whispering how great they are, everybody else communicating to everybody else how wonderful scribes and Pharisees are because these guys are sort of the picture of rightness with God or a life. So maybe first century you would ask the question, if you're just a typical beggar or peasant first century, someone walks up to you and they're like, hey, what does the picture of a life that's right with God look like? Maybe your answer would be, just like that Pharisee over there. Think about how devastating that is. I mean, here you are, you can't even come close to that, and you're looking at that and you're thinking, then I must be really far from God, because I'm nothing like that. The other thing I think Jesus is saying to his followers, he says that there is a righteousness that he's talking about for his followers that's actually gifted from God. God gifts this righteousness. He offers it. And what it does is it actually changes the heart and transforms, consequently, the outward actions. This is all part of the bigger concept that I tried to say a couple of weeks ago of the New Covenant. Let me put it this way. The, older covenant, the Old Covenant had to do with regulations and laws and holy days. But at the same time, God comes on the scene and establishes a New Covenant. In the book of Isaiah, there's this passage, uh, Jeremiah, well, it talks about this idea that Jesus, there's going to come a day when one is going to come and He's going to make a New Covenant with the house of Israel. Not as in the Old Covenant where it was written on stone, tablets of stone, referring to the Ten Commandments or the Torah. But the New Covenant will be written on your heart. Basically what I think this passage refers to is the way that God is going to change, the way He's going to bring about this revolution is not by external fighting and activity to try to overthrow one oppressive government with another oppressive government. Rather, is by conquering us with love. Changing our hearts. Changing our lives. I'll give you an example. I got a dog and a cat. They never get along. Alright? I don't mean it's like a typical dog or he just wants to eat a cat. I mean, my dog is hyper. It's like about a year old, still kind of a puppy. It's super hyper. It bounces all over the place, jumps. And my cat is, is really calm, really mellow. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like my wife and myself. I'm the dog. Alright? And what happens is, the, the cat might be there, and the dog comes in, and the dog's bouncing all over the place, and the cat's freaking out. It's just, I can read the mind of the cat. I'm still learning how to read the mind of my wife. But the cat, I know what it's saying is, calm down, I don't want to be around you, you're psycho. That's what the cat's saying. You're psycho. And what happens is, just this morning, as I was walking down the hall, my dog was freaking out. The cat's just sitting there, like lodged in between like a plant in my, my little television set. It's like protected, and the dog's bouncing up and down, and trying to sniff it. I'm like, Ginger, mellow out. 
Like, sit down, you know? And I make my dog sit. My dog, like, sits, and you can tell it's not wanting to sit. It's like, leg is, like, going like this. I'm like, just sit still! I'm like, lay down. So I'm tapping the ground, it lays down. And the dog, cat, are, like, this close from each other. And I'm like, Sherry, check it out! They're laying down next to each other. They're friends! Right? In reality, it's a forced, coerced relationship. It's not there. There's nothing there. Right? Because I turn my back, and the dog's going to freak out again. Because that's just what my dog does. The same way is true of forced religion. You can force morality upon somebody. You can force a set of standards and righteousness and externalities of how to perform, how to live, how to look the righteous way. But unless your heart is changed, you're just the son of the devil. But you're dressed up in nice clothing. All right? The fires of hell are still burning deep inside. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, I'm going to bring a revolution. It won't be like the old revolution. It won't be external. It will be a change on the internal. The change will come from within side. The change will come from the heart. That's how I will do this. That's how this will take place. It will be in that I will fulfill the law. And this is how the kingdom of heaven will take place. And so the, re- the righteousness that Jesus is talking about is not this righteousness that comes from external activity. I sat down with my kids last night and we talked through this. And I said, Brianna, Brooke, listen to me. Daddy loves you guys. And I want you guys to live good lives. But more importantly... More importantly than you guys putting on some fake smile, more importantly than you guys walking around and being able to be like little Bible quiz people who know the scriptures, more important, I really, I told my sister, listen, I really, I'm not as concerned about what you do as who you are. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to know the love of God. I'm going to tell you how to live. I mean, there's rules in the house that we're going to set. Is a standard there? There are righteous rules established, but at the same time, bottom of my heart, I just I want you to know the love of God. It's about a relationship with God. You can force something, but what happens under forced coercion of doing something? Something's bound to break, or whether it's bound to break, meaning it just explodes, and people think they're great and righteous and authoritative and full of pride and arrogance and sinfulness. Or people break in that they feel horrible, they feel awful, they feel like they've not kept up to the standard of righteousness that mom and dad set, or the standard that some pastor or preacher who is very legalistic established. They can't do it, and they feel horrible. And the purpose of the Gospel, and purpose of what Jesus is communicating, is saying, you need a righteousness that's better than bigger than, broader than the scribes and Pharisees. And really what he's directing them at is saying, I've come to fulfill the law of Moses. I've come to be the standard. I've come to set the standard, to live the standard, and to empower those who trust me to be the standard. Not by mere external activity, but by changing your heart to want to do what God wants you to do. Because... You love him. Religious leader came to Jesus one day and he says, Listen, great master, what's the greatest law that I should keep? Jesus says, Did you notice this? Jesus never says, Go out, 
give away all your money in the sense of just, you know, buy big donations for people and help everybody out. Jesus really cuts to the heart. He says, here's what I want you to do more than anything. The most important thing, love God. It's about this relationship with God. And then, flowing out of that relationship with God comes goodness. Whereby maybe you want to go sell your goods and give it to the poor. Or maybe you want to help other people and forgive other people. Rather than harboring grudges of anger and bitterness, you want to release them from anger and bitterness. And you want to grant forgiveness. It is a revolution that takes place in the heart. I want to finish with this. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up and I'm going to finish with this little section here. And we'll spend a few moments worshiping the Lord, praying, singing. Is that in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, Paul the Apostle was a, a guy that comes along years after Christ. And what happens is Paul, no doubt, is trying to understand and work with the text that he's given, like the stories of Jesus and reading these passages and whatnot. And I think as Paul's trying to work through even like subject matter like the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to put into words that can articulate how does this play out in doctrine? How does this play out in practice, in life? In action. And here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. He says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If the law had been given that we could, that we could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the promise of faith in Christ Jesus, that we might be given to those who believe. So here's what Paul's saying, is that really what happens is when we read the law, when we understand the Old Testament covenant, we realize we are just crushed by it. We can't keep it. Even when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we realize, loving my enemies? That's impossible. How do we do that? And the purpose of it really is to leave us with this impression, this understanding. We cannot do it on our own. We need external help. And this is where Paul comes in. He says, listen, the law, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, everything is meant to be a sign, a post, an arrow that points to Jesus. It says, Jesus lived and fulfilled and completed and interpreted the law of Moses. And everybody who trusts in Christ, who loves Christ, who comes to Christ, Fulfills that in Christ. So really what happens is he's saying, Jesus becomes the Savior of those who realize they can't save themselves. Okay, does that make sense? And the bottom line is this, is that by nature, by default, we are all Pharisees. We all are. We all are. We all make up our own ways. How to be righteous with God. Some of us, we utilize, you know, religious talk and communication. Some... You can go on the street and some dude that has never been to church his entire life, and you're like, you know, if you die, heaven, hell, where do you think go? Uh, I think heaven. Why? Uh, because I don't sell drugs to underage kids, only big kids. Okay? I guess that's a good standard to live by. You know what I'm saying? I mean, honestly, this is how people think that we have sort of these out-of-whack mentality which tries to make ourselves right. God's eyes, the bottom line is this, is that the law is meant to point us to a place where we, we can't be made right by doing stuff. Jesus does it all and satisfies God in the meantime. But here's the thing. It doesn't end there. God 
changes us, saves us, transforms us by changing our heart. And our hearts now change. Now, as having a heart, changed heart, we want to live different lives. And what happens is we begin to live out sort of what takes place in the Sermon on the Mount. So rather than harboring grudges against people, we actually want to love people. And what Jesus says, people who live like this end up actually becoming like a light on a hill. Become like salt that preserves a corrupted society, culture. The people that live like this actually change the world for good. Guys, this is what I said last week. The great commission, the great call from God, first and foremost, is to believe, be baptized. But then to go out in all the world and make disciples. So that we would communicate the message of God through our lives, through our lives, through the things that we do, through the things that we say, so that God would be glorified, we would be satisfied, and that people would be changed. That's what we hope for. That's our great desire. That's what we, what we want as a church to be, as Calvary Slow, as we live here in San Luis. We want to have a preserving effect on San Luis. How do we do that? By telling everybody what they should do? No. But rather by pointing everybody to Jesus, who changes their hearts, who changes their desires, and gives them a new desire to want to live that pleases God. And what consequently flows out of that is people naturally want to be reconciled to others they've lived an offense with. People want to forgive those that they've held grudges against. People naturally view their money in different ways where they would rather give it away instead of just hoarding it. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The gospel is radically revolutionary. And that's what Jesus calls us to live out. Alright? I'm going to pray... I want to call you to the gospel. I want to call you to this. If you're here and you look at the fact within the life that you're living and you realize, I've not kept up to these standards. I've not lived the life that God has wanted me to live. The bottom line is, I would call you to look to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you realize, I can't forgive people. I'm having a hard time doing that. Or you look at some of the little things of the law and you're like, thinking of those things in terms of belittling ways. I think God would call us to say, don't think little of those things. Think the way Jesus thinks about those things. Does that make sense? In other words, look at the whole of the Torah and interpret it all through Christ. Okay? All through Christ. Does Jesus view anything as being obsolete? You know, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Fulfill the Torah ultimately for the purpose of giving you Life, because He loves you. Because He loves you. He wants you to have life. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond to the Lord. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. If you're here, one of our guests, maybe you've never been here before.